Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, your devastatingly handsome host, as we take on the world's game, but with an American perspective and accent, I might add. Uh, how novel, niche programming, thinking outside the box, as it were. Joined every week as I am uh, by media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Today on Over the Ball, we talk to the former Secretary General of U.S. Soccer, Hank Steinbrecher. The man has literally seen it and done it all in the world of soccer. Uh, started out as a college coach. Um, uh, actually started as a player, won a national championship as a player, and then as a coach, some some uh, SEC championships. Uh, then he moved and worked for Gatorade, who were, I guess, Quaker Oats, and a big sponsor, and learned what made money for other sports, and then brought all that expertise back to the world of soccer. He was back in the fold. And so uh, he was a huge part of putting the 1994 World Cup together here in the United States. And uh, and it's been success since then. So it's great to hear these old stories because, guys, I talk about it all the time. Uh, we forget our history here in soccer already, you know, just 10, 20 years um, the people who have sort of shaped where the game is today. We have a successful domestic league and our national team is doing pretty well. Uh, depends what game and what week we're watching that one, but, uh, but all good. So it'll be great to, uh, to get caught up with uh, Coach Steinbrecher. Uh, became obviously Secretary General, but he will always be coach to me. Um, and speaking of old, I was at my, uh, Sam, you missed the alumni game this weekend at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, guys, I thought I it was interesting. Invited. You weren't invited. All right. Well, <laughs> I invited you. Sam, um, Sam's very controversial on the team. Apparently. He is. He's the, like I said, the 80 year old sharecropper, heart and soul here. <laughs> well, I went up for the uh, induction of the former head coach, Sam Koch, uh, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame there. And uh, he got it. He got the biggest reception and a huge um, response from the audience it was a huge uh, crowd. It was in the Mullen Center, which a couple, you know, thousand people were in there. I don't know for dinner, but for a couple hundred anyway. And also being inducted was uh, John Calipari's, I think, ninety-five basketball team that got to the Final Four. But what I found so interesting was uh, Sam Koch took a UMass soccer team to the NCAA Final Four. You know, because look, it was a big deal for the basketball team to get there, but the basketball team was fully funded. The uh, the men men's you know, soccer team, as I've complained on, on this, these airways constantly, they had 2.5 scholarships playing teams that were fully funded. And somehow by hook or by crook, those guys with a little chip on their shoulder uh, or a, perhaps a big chip on their shoulder, they fought it out, grinded it out, worked past these fully funded teams to get into the NCAA um, uh, championship. And so I think that team should be the next team at the university of Massachusetts that gets put into the, uh, to the hall of fame. Cause it was, uh, it was pretty great. And I got to say, Sam, um, they have a great, uh, athletic director up there. Um, Ryan Bamford, he came over, he talked to the soccer team for a long time. I mean, the four years that I was at UMass never met the, the athletic director. Didn't even, did not even care about the soccer team. And I know that some of these coaches there, uh, some of these athletic directors, their hands are tied because of the, um, you know, 85 scholarship for men's football. And all the women get funded immediately because of that. And then they have to sort of dole out the other, you know, scholarships. So it's, uh, so it's kind of hard. So anyway, then Saturday morning played in the alumni game and I was already feeling old because I had too many cocktails the <laughs> night before and then talk about really feeling old. You got 25 year olds zipping past you. I'm like, I don't think I was ever that quick or that fast. I'm sore as hell. I get in my car. I drive back to my hometown for my high school reunion, which I'm emceeing. 
and I walk up to the podium and I'm limping and people are like, did you get in a motorcycle accident or something? <laughs> I'm like, no, I played soccer about two hours ago and I'm paying the price right now. So, uh, so busy weekend for me. It was great nostalgia. Uh, it was great to see the boys. Uh, I swear almost more fun than playing with each other is just, um, you know, playing soccer with each other is just having a beer and, and, uh, the crack afterwards, you know, you not, probably not pulled muscles. You didn't even know you had exactly those hip flexors just <laughs> tighten up as you're, uh, as you're older. So the car right, ride so doesn't help either. Floating no, I tightened right, right up right in the car for two hours of stiffness, tighten right up in the car ride. So by the time I got there, I was like, I was a mess, but, uh, all right. So we got a lot to talk about. I, I, I'm really looking forward to talking to Hank. Uh, but before we get to that, what are you guys over today on over the ball grail? Yeah, so I'm, I'm over the overuse of what I call the hands-up gesture, and we all know it. It's whenever somebody commits a foul, and they immediately – and by the way, the, the foul could involve, like, literally taking somebody's leg off, and immediately right. the hands come up, you know, like a, like a, a bank holdup, to somehow try to convince the referee that nothing – there's nothing to see here. Yeah. But actually, the guy – nine out of ten times, the guy's on the ground, and, like, his kneecap has been removed. And I just, I don't know why I was conscious of it this past weekend, but it was just really funny. Like the number of guys, it happens in the box too. When they do it every time, kick. actually. So Everybody on the jostling on the uh, on corner kicks, lots of jostling, the ref turns around and looks at a guy and he immediately puts his hands up. And as soon as the ref turns around, he starts wrestling the guy again. So right. I'm just like, how is this stuff even, why do you guys keep trying to do this tactic? It's never worked before and it's not working currently. They do it every time it goes out of bounds too, but it's always, it's yeah. basically the soccer version of my bad. And yes, you know, it's like punching somebody in the face going, Oh, oh my bad, my bad. Sorry. Yeah. It's like, well, you, you meant to do it. You did it. All right, right, Sam, what do you got? What are you over? Yeah. I'm over refs waiting to blow the final whistle for a game or the halftime whistle even until like a goal kick or a goalie punt is mid air. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> or even worse after a team scores maybe. And then they allow the ball to be put in play on the kickoff and then immediately blow the final whistle. Like well, if there's not time for a play to develop, the game's over. And I mean, this doesn't always happen, but a lot of times they let like a long, the goalie just kick it down the field. Two guys go up for the header and then it ends with the ball sort of being scrapped for. And it, it, it seems like now with all the evidence about how bad heading is, there's no need for this last little. It's just pointless. I don't understand it. Oh, that one header at the end of the game. That'll. that'll Do you agree, though, Sam, that you can't end a game without a corner kick or a close-in free kick being executed? In other words, if that's going to be the last play of the game, you can't blow the whistle prior to that taking place. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's nothing to do with this. And but it yeah. ends. Right. And it ends when the play ends. Really, not even when even the kick is taken, which is, I think is an odd thing, which they can't quite digest in America, especially on the NCAA level. What I saw this weekend in the EPL and it made it much more enjoyable was they called offsides. They pulled the flag up when the guy was offsides uh, to stop the play at that point, because that was driving me crazy. They just play on for like 30 seconds and then it's offsides. It's like, yeah, you know, stop it then. So well, that was, well, uh, well, the other thing too, Sam, is when the, the, uh, the board goes up for uh, extra stoppage time and it says five minutes, it's still up to the ref's discretion to determine what that five minutes actually is. It could mm -hmm. be because in most cases, it's not five on the dot. It's not like a whistle goes off and it's like it's 95 minutes. It's usually the ref deciding, you know, five minutes plus 30 seconds or whatever. He but, well, but you, you know why that is, because what happens is players, people don't understand this unless you've played the game, which yeah. is players will start flopping. Uh, right. taking their time and the referee's going hey look guys you can you can delay all you want but i'm going to keep adding the time and it's sort right. of like all right all right and i think people in the americans 
sports fans sometimes don't understand that. It's like, you know, we know that soccer players can be dicks sometimes and, uh, and try to, you know, it's like doesn't end like a basketball shot mm-hmm. from half court with two seconds left. And it's pretty definitive. So, um, all right. So watching a little uh, Premier League this weekend. Did you watch it at all, Sam? Or are you just going Syria? Because it was Ronaldo and Lukaku, kind of a big, who's the big striker right now? Um, I think yeah, Ronaldo I had a great return to United there. I didn't watch any of it, so I'll let Grail handle that. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just like the the pageantry, even though I'm not a big Ronaldo fan, it was hard not to get sucked in because Old Trafford was buzzing. You know, it was his first game after a 12-year absence, and he comes out, and of course, he scores two goals. I mean, the script could not have been written better. There was Bedlam in the stands. He delivered. They win 4-1. It's, it's just like storybook. Um, and, uh, and again, I'm not a big fan of Ronaldo's, but I get, you know, I got to give him his due. He, he delivers, he, de- he delivers. And, and the other nice thing is Fernandez, his Portuguese teammate also scored because oh, it's going to be really important moving forward, how that connection works on the team, because once they get to penalty kicks and free kicks, then you're going to have a little bit of a tug of war of who's going to be taking those. I think, you know, I didn't see Cavani out there either. So it's like, he's, he's, he's riding the pine. Cavani, Rashford. I mean, they're going to have to, you know, playing time is going to be an issue for Man United. I mean, they've got, they've got a spoil of riches, but it's going to be like, who's going to play and who's going to sit and you're going to have some unhappy people. I think whoever takes penalty kicks is the least of their worries in that regard. So, uh, and he's left Syria. Ah, so you got to be a little sad, Sam. Uh, I could care less about Ronaldo. I mean, the league has been uh, obviously. <laughs> Come on, you can care less about it. You can care less about everything, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I mean, the league is. I've mentioned this before. It's taken hit. I mean, I think Lukaku is a bigger loss personally. Um, in terms of star power, it maybe doesn't compare with Ronaldo. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Hakimi went to PSG. He was one of the better defenders last year. Uh, DePaul, Rodrigo DePaul, went to Atletico Madrid. He was one of the better midfielders if not the best midfielder last year so yeah there's some there's some definite holes i mean i I, again i think ronaldo's time at juventus is almost like especially with the fact that he went to back to man united i mean 10 years from now when you look back i think people will forget he was at juventus for three years because it seems like you know man united is such a natural bookend to his career um you know, no question the guy performed, like you said, Grail. I, I think Juventus are actually better off without him. It's going to take them a minute to figure it out, obviously, because yeah. the team was so, you know, set up to support him as you do when you have a star player like that. And they are struggling out of the gate, but um, it's still definitely really early. But I mean, yeah, there's no question the the, the profile of the league, um, you know, takes a hit when any of these guys leave. And uh, it's tough, but that's just, you know, the Premier yeah, League being what it is. And, you know. I think especially strikers, Sam, because I just feel like, you know, to put it in American terms, strikers are really like quarterbacks in terms of they're the marquee players, especially if you're scoring 30 plus goals mm-hmm. per season, you know, you're the focal point of, of the team and of the league. And when you lose, you know, when 60 goals or whatever it is, walks out the door, you lose a lot of that kind of that sexiness and the sizzle. Of the center, center midfield is the quarterback. Center midfield is the quarterback. Well, no, but I mean, but, but again, I, I don't know if you guys disagree, but to me, a productive striker is the single most important player on a team because you can be the best team in the world from box to box. But if you don't have a goal scorer, you can be drawing and losing a lot of games. And and Chelsea yeah. with Lukaku is like a totally different team. All those goals that Timo Werner missed last year 
Mm-hmm. Lukaku's scoring like virtually every chance or every other chance he's converting. So it makes a huge difference. And, and he wants it, man. He wants it bad. He's a living, breathing, bleeding Chelsea colors, man. So yeah. well, you're, you're you know, a happy I, you know, boy. Just, just quickly, Flanagan, on his goal in the Champions League oh, yesterday. Oh, no, we got Chelsea. Was, no, no, Here no, he goes. Just, Here no, we go, no, Sam. No, 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 no. I'm just saying it was classic striker. The ball came out wide. Espelicueta had it, and you saw Lukaku's hand go up. And it was a, just a wonderful cross, but it was just a classic striker's goal, you know? But even I'm, I'm in, more impressed. And, and it's something that the U.S. lacks is this hold-up play. That's all yeah. just, uh, he, you know, he does, which creates things for other players and, and um, you know, yeah. get, get, gives your team a break there. So yeah. Champions League has uh, started. Guys, there's another game on today. We're recording this on, uh, what's today? Wednesday. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts so far yesterday? Well, Barca. I mean, Barcelona once again just got run off the pitch by Bayern Munich. So on the heels of losing eight two last year at Camp Nou, they lost three nil. It's like that. Barca should never want to play Bayern Munich again because they just. And of course, Lewandowski scored two goals. So back well, to look, our striker look. conversation. Yeah, but you know. I, th- I said with Barcelona they've got to kind of eat some crow for a couple of years just to get their balance sheets in order before they can yeah. start going out there and be in Barcelona again, because they've been so mismanaged financially. Right. So that's no big surprise to me yesterday. Well, I mean, but they lost a two with a, with Messi and with a good squad. And then, you know, and now they lost. So they've essentially lost. Yeah, but things things are going on there. Things are going on, obviously. So God knows it was going on in the locker room and the front office. We know what was going on because it was, horrible fiduciary responsibilities on their part my god it was horrible so uh i'm worried about uh, uh jesse marsh he's gotten off to a sort of a bad start huh yeah uh, this well this will be happening today we're recording on a wednesday uh leipzig are yeah. going to take on man city which is obviously a tough game in england yeah um but uh, something we didn't talk about last week was that leipzig were playing bayern over the weekend and they got crushed at home 4 one uh so i mean bayern seemed to be just crushing everybody it doesn't really matter right. but yeah jesse marsh now has lost three of his four opening games in the bundesliga which is not a great start obviously that team had some turnover too lost some players um, but you know, worth keeping an eye on because it's they're in a really hard group with both PSG and Man City in the Champions League. It's hard to see them getting out of that. So it's not not an easy start to his his career. And, I, and I hate to say it, Sam, but unfairly, he's going to be judged dif- differently because he's an American coach. So he's got of added course. pressure on him because there's that going in. There's like, well, you know, we told you. Well, and going back to the Premier League stuff, uh, you know, Man City. It- I mean, they were the best team around last year. It, it, there's some parity there up that these elite teams now, uh, four or five teams that could all sort of take it. Um, I tell you, I was really enjoying this young kid from Liverpool. Uh, he, the terrible ankle dislocation that he had, I forget his name, but uh, he was really making things oh, yeah. happen. Yeah, he um, was making it. Williams, or something yeah. I forget, but wow. A terrible injury for the kid, tackled from behind, got a red, the other guy got a red car. Dislocated his, his ankle. Yeah, but he was played positive, turned on the ball, yeah. uh, got a couple shots off, was quick, really added something. And he was 18 years old. So really heartbreaking to see a young man, you know, get yeah. break that break into that squad and then get hurt like that. Yeah. So uh, the best to him. Um, yeah, they play today. I'm, I'm, I am interested in seeing PSG against Club Bruges because hopefully we'll see the Neymar, Mbappe, Messi triumvirate playing together, which we haven't really seen yet. Good word. And then an yeah. American uh, PFOC scored the goal against Manchester United yesterday in the 95th minute to uh, to win. So we got a 
And I nice, was like, hey, yeah, that was nice. Take it that, was, Pepe. Much more of a, an error on the part of, uh, I think it was Jesse yeah. Lingard from Man oh, United. Yeah. But I mean, right place, right time. And uh, horrific. And that cool that pass, now. Sam. I, I, I've watched it like five times over now, just thinking, like, Jesse, what were you thinking? And then well, the striker minute. in the defending third of the yes, field. Exactly. So it's yeah. a boneheaded mistake. So, yeah. I think uh, Ming made a back pass, um, you know, as well in, in the game. Um, in the Premier League, a back pass. And, you know, oh, yeah, that was against, yeah, that was Tyrone Mings in the Chelsea game, yeah. Yeah, in the Chelsea game. Yeah. So, um, all right, so some news in U.S. soccer. Uh, Cindy Parlow has asked Players Association for uh, men's and the women's team to come together to equalize World Cup prize money between both teams. Now, what does that mean, Grail? Yeah, no, so, so what it means is there's a pool of money that comes to the federations following the respective World Cups, and then the money gets divided up, you know, among, among the teams. And, uh, and uh, so what, what she's basically saying is, you know, the, the pool for the men's world cup is vastly more than the pool for the women's world cup. It's just because they generate different amounts of revenue, but they want the percentage of the pool to be the same. And I actually think it's a good idea. I've, I've always believed that the men's and the women's national team needed to come together with a collective bargaining agreement so that there couldn't be, they're not pitted against each other, which I always thought was unhealthy. Sure. So, hope, so well, hopefully, so don't you that, think though that don't you think the women pitted themselves against it using the sexist argument and to say well, that we're being treated unfairly? When well, in I fact, mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, to be fair, you know, the women have had to scratch and claw for a lot of things in terms of just basic parity and you know per diems, hotels, plane conditions, all of that. So I, so I get all of that. The, the the simple fact is, as we've always talked about, not equal pay, but equitable pay. So the right. pools are very different. You can't expect to make the same money off a smaller pool of money than the men's have. However, you should each get 15% or whatever it is. So that's I agree with the direction that. I think it should go. But weren't the women trying to get, even though the men were getting a larger share from FIFA, from their World Cup participation, they wanted a part of that as well. Yeah, the well, they. I mean, I, that's, I, just, that's just bullshit. I mean, that's. I think crazy. sixty million was the lawsuit in like back pay, and there's just no way in the world that's they're going to get that. And just you know, in our conversations with Professor Bank, you know, he thinks like maybe twenty million or something like that might be more reasonable in back pay. But again, I, I just <laughs> think once you bring the two teams together and have a unified deal, it will be better moving forward. Equitable, I think, is the yes. key argument there. Because we have always argued, I think hotel accommodations and food and travel should all be the same, should all yes. be. But them saying they should make as much as the men, uh, um, I don't agree with because they're not bringing in as much. But your point is that it should be the same percentage from whatever the pool is. And I'm all for that. Yeah, I mean, it's 400 million for the 2018 Men's World Cup versus 30 million. That's the pool of money. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's so much, you know, it's 10 times different in terms of the revenues coming in. So you can't, you can't expect to make as much money. I, I think they've overplayed their hand yeah. personally. And then you yeah. got a chance to watch that movie that um, I, I did watch uh, LFG. Puff, uh, Puff let's, let's fucking go. I'll just say it because that's what it stands for. And yeah, I just I, I thought, unfortunately, they did that themselves a disservice by not having a, an objective point of view legalistically talking about the deals because it's so slanted in one way and it's very self-serving 
that there is no objectivity and it's everything is slant, you know, it's just pointed in one direction. I think it would have been great just having a, an impartial person saying, Hey, just looking at both, this is what I see on this side and this side, and maybe they can meet somewhere in the middle, but it was, it was not, it was not that at all. Well, look, I feel like we have always with soccer programs, we have always pulled for each other because, you know, when we started Grail, it was like nobody cared about soccer and you, you were passionate about it. And the men's and women's team, we were all in this together. And then I feel like this group of players, some more than others, have sort of done themselves a disservice because most of the people I talk to, including most women, aren't really fans of what how they have gone about this and how they have handled this. So I think it's unfortunate. Well, and Megan Rapino, I just don't think she's so overexposed and she comes, uh, to me, she comes across as an opportunist to a lot of people that I think in a way, her being the spokesperson hasn't really benefited them. I think it would have been better if it was more of a team approach as opposed to putting the most, you know, telegenic person who's going to come on all the talk shows, which again, seems very self-serving as opposed to being about the team. Right. And, um, you know, then I think on the heels of the Me Too movement and then the woke sort of culture, it just has turned people off in a bad way. You know, because it's a sports, it's like, you know, you got to put people in the seats, you got to bring in money. And, and that's that's the way it works. It's sort of like my point always where I go back to, you know, when I asked Carly Lloyd if the WNBA should make what the NBA makes. And she said, yes, because that's what's fair. I'm like, oh, my God, I, you know, how do you even continue a conversation after that? I do have, I do have to say that Carlos Cordero and the way that the U.S. Soccer Federation conducted themselves before Cindy Parlo Cohn came in was reprehensible. And they did themselves no favor in the court right. of public opinion because they were a bunch of cavemen in terms of their interpretations of women's abilities and stuff so right and and we were surprised when we found out that there was not equitable uh travel arrangements and things and playing conditions that's just absurd you know so uh sam anything on this at all you want to jump in Uh, i've yet to see the documentary i I think you know the disparity (laughs) in the in the prize money is really what it all comes down to It's, it's hard for me to get past that yeah. 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 Well, that's talk to FIFA because first of all, the success that it has domestically, the World Cup, a women's World Cup does not is not shared throughout the rest of the world. So, um, you know, it's almost like what I always say to the women, a kick in Thailand's ass 13 zip and it's like a big win. It's like most of those women, you know, didn't have sports five years ago. Uh, yeah. It's 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 sort of apples and oranges is what everyone always says. I all guess right, so also, speaking- sorry, one thing that stood out, Grail, you mentioned in the article that you read that uh, the U.S. men and women are the highest, two of the highest paid national teams in the world, right? Yeah, the, the so, the New, the, so the New York Times did an analysis of it and they came up with exactly what you're saying, Sam. So for all for all the grumbling, the, the teams are incredibly well compensated versus the rest of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, like I said, the Haitian, the women's Haitian team, when they came here to play, they had to have a, a pancake breakfast uh, fundraiser to be able to pay for their uh, for their meals at night. Yeah. <laughs> it's absurd. It's, yeah. And a lot of those teams have to have, you know, people donate uh, kits, you know, for playing in boots and all of that stuff. I mean, they don't have it. They, they have nothing in comparison. But but again, again, to be fair, equitable. That is a very fair ask. Nobody, uh, and then build your sport and they shall come. Yes. Um, All right. Now, every two years, a World Cup, that's been bantered about a little bit. Seems like the reaction was pretty negative. Uh, Not as big as the Super League announcement, but but what are your thoughts on this, guys? Sam? Yeah, I mean, it's been met understandably with overwhelming um, sort of negativity, it seems like, aside from a very few, uh, a select few, I should say. Um, Right. 
I, I don't like the idea in principle. I think there are aspects that may come with it that could be decent. Uh, the first one being less international breaks and these ridiculous, you know, qualifying windows and everything that break mm -hmm. up the club season. Uh, I mean, I've said in the past, you know, all these federations have sort of a built-in qualifying tournament already. Uh, mm -hmm. Like we could just use the gold cup, for example, to decide who right. goes to the world cup if we wanted to. So I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea. I personally wouldn't want to see a world cup every two years. I don't think, just yeah. I think it would lose a little bit of its, uh, it's you know, mystique, shiny. but I agree, but I don't, again, I, I don't like the argument. I think Jurgen Klopp and a lot of people said, you know, it's, this is just all about money. It's a money grab, which is what you heard, you know, alongside the super, league um you know protests and i mean what is not about money in right. you know modern professional level soccer and I, I don't get why some things are obscene and greedy and other things are kind of just run of the mill um Grail, you were mentioning uh you know chelsea needing a striker despite yeah. the fact that they won the champions league a I year know. ago uh you know jack Grealish going to manchester city which is widely considered by many people as being sort of a luxury buy and a player they didn't even really need so sure. I, I don't i don't understand how that does not constitute a form of greed either um it's all money. sort of all of these things so i, I don't know I, i'm a little uh, torn on that argument but yeah i'm with you sam but it is all about money i just don't think realistically from a scheduling standpoint how with an already crowded schedule that every coach and management manager and club owner is complaining about that you're going to be mm -hmm. adding another world cup every two years it's just it would make it would blow up the schedule even further well i so. think but i think if you said you will have one or two breaks during the season instead of yeah. six then yeah. you might get some people on your side i'm with you though i just think it I, I just think it kind of devalues it a little bit i love the fact that it's every four years because you really look forward to it right yeah it would, it would ruin it and plus you got a women's world cup in there as well yeah i'm saying and you have champions league you know and you have the euros uh and so it's like it's already too crowded it, it really is. And and they're trying to, I think, kind of game each other to see who can sort of be the top dog. And the World Cup is the top dog, but I don't think they like the Euros take away from them and uh, these other tournaments. But I think, Sam, you're yeah. right with like the Gold Cup could be a qualification round because it would actually heighten the stakes of something like the Gold Cup instead of just yeah, totally. playing for the Gold Cup. You know, it actually yeah. means something more than just winning the cup itself. So, all right. Well, so we have a great conversation coming up with Hank Steinbrecher, former Secretary General of uh, U.S. soccer. He was a, a head college coach uh, in this country for a long time. And um, boy, he was there for it all. And uh, he really he talks about some really interesting stuff, some, some stuff I did not know about. Um, so uh, coming up after the break, uh, our conversation with Hank Steinbrecher. Our guest this week on Over the Ball is a man who is a huge part of the growth and uh, continuation of the game in this country. As I mentioned in the opening, he won a national championship as a player with Davis and Elkins, then as a coach, taking Appalachian State to, uh, I think, like three SC championships. Uh, then he coached at Boston University for four years from 1980 to 84, where he had to go up against a, uh, a mullet-wearing Irish-tempered midfielder for four years. He then uh, went into sports marketing, where um, he became the director of sports marketing for Quaker Oats. 
And then he took all that knowledge and came back to the soccer fold in 1990 as Secretary General of the United States, uh, developing soccer sponsorships and was responsible for overseeing the staging of the 1994 World Cup, where I got to see him again and, and hang out a little bit. Uh, what a huge endeavor that was. Uh, welcome back to Over the Ball, longtime uh, friend of mine, Coach uh, Hank Steinbrecher. How are you, Hank? Well, I'm doing very well, and it's always really, really nice to see you. You know, I still it's use nice the term to coach. See you on camera than it was to see you on the pitch. Oh my God! Well, I went to my reunion in high school the other day, and boy, was that uh, just, you know the women looked great, the guys looked like shit. So it was. Uh, it was, it was I was so glad I'm doing all right so far. Um, yeah, but the women but, always look good to you. They really did. They really did. It was part of. A, tell my ex-wife that. All right. So so um, I still call you coach because I don't know. It's a term of endearment and it's a, a, a respect. I remember I did uh, Good Morning Texas once and we, we, uh, I interviewed Tom Landry, the, the Cowboys coach, and I kept calling him coach. And at the break, the women behind the producer comes out and she goes, you can't call him coach. I said, why not? She said, well, he's not a coach anymore. I said, oh, no, no, that's not the way it works. <laughs> always a coach. Once a coach, always a coach. So, you know, uh, Hank, you have such an amazing career. I think the, the tough part about history is sometimes people forget uh, of the humble beginnings that soccer was. Now, you, you know, you played it in, at the college level, then you coached it at the college level. I think the really unique thing that happened with you is when you got pulled in for your sort of business savvy and the things you learned at Quaker Oats. Because I remember talking to you, I said, what's it like? And you're like, NASCAR, NFL, all these great institutions that you were learning from and saying, this soccer is a business, a business that can work and we've got to treat it like a business. You know, we have the passion, but let's be smart about it. And, um, I, you know, and then you brought the World Cup here. Just talk a little bit about, about your amazing journey. Well, you know, I think I've been uh, touched by the hand of fortune everywhere I've gone. I started out at a well, you know, in my beginnings at Metropolitan Oval in New York City, you know, so you go from Met Oval to wow. the World Cup Finals, you know, it's quite a quite a journey. Uh, it's it, but it has been an, an incredibly good. The biggest break, I think, that I had actually was going to Boston University, mm -hmm. and it was a tough decision because I had uh, my family was in Appalachia, you know, we were very rural family. And uh, here I'm taking them into, while well, I grew up in the city, in New York City, I'm taking to Boston where the only tree that exists at Boston University is in their catalog. Yeah. It, it's all concrete. Mm -hmm. uh, but it turns out that it was, while my last year there was abysmal as a coach, it was the best move I've, move I've ever made because I was offered the job of being the venue director for the 1984 Olympic Games part of which were held at Harvard University. And I was the venue director at Harvard. That put right. me in contact with people who were in the business of sport, like Bill Schmidt, who became the vice president of Quaker Oats in sports marketing. And he brought me on as director. And that really, really turned my head. You know, going from academia to corporate America, number one, you're changing not just your job, you're changing your culture. You're, right. you're changing your career. Uh, and there was some trepidation there. And moving to Chicago, moved my family to Chicago. The first three months I was there, all I did was read contracts. You know, okay, well, here's the NFL contract. 
Why did we negotiate this contract the way we negotiated? What were the points that we needed to bring away from this? And what did we want to give them? Mm -hmm. And uh, three months, all I did was read contracts. And I started to learn the importance of leverage in negotiations and how critically important that was. But the biggest lesson I learned there was that the business of sport is still a relationship business. Mm -hmm. That the minute you pick up a contract and have to read that contract, the relationship is dead. So the work comes after the signing of the contract. And that was a big, big idea for me. Uh, and I, you know, here I was able to work with the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NASCAR, PGA, Indianapolis 500, FIFA, every major sporting event in the world, Olympics. And I just got done with a stint at the Olympics and in, in management. So I was able to, to learn to compare and contrast sporting organizations. And I was left with a, a, a stunning relation is that the team that's on the field is usually a reflection of the team that's off the field. Wow. So if you have excellence in management off the field, your team will probably be excellent on the field, if not immediately, in due time. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, Coach, because, you know, one of the things I had taken from, um, you know, I went up to UMass and we would play BU every year. Uh, you had, you were the head coach. Neil Roberts was the assistant coach, a great guy as well. Players loved to play for you guys. The, your, your players really loved playing for you guys. And there was an enthusiasm there. Um, they were all glad they were there. And I think that sort of charisma that you had uh, with motivating young men, you sort of took to the business world. And I remember seeing you during the Olympic time uh, in Boston, and you started to just say, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. And even the, uh, the, I guess the um, potential that soccer had, I think you, you realized it. I remember talking to you at one of the coaches conventions about a lot of soccer players think it's all about the mullet and the flip-flops and it is not, it is, it is a business. So there's the passion and then there's the business part of it. So I call it, Kevin, I call it the game outside the game, mm -hmm. the business and politics of sport. And it's pretty universally the same for every sport. There's a lot of politics and there's a lot of business that goes on and you've got to understand that and you've got to embrace it. And it, it's very, very competitive. And that's where you get your juice. Grail, that was your world forever yeah. too, as well. No doubt. Uh, Hank, it's an honor having you. And uh, thanks for everything you've done for our sport. Yeah. Um, just uh, sticking to college for a minute, because it, it was such a part of your soccer life as a player and a coach. I'm just curious what your thoughts are of the college game currently and where you feel it fits into kind of the landscape moving forward. Um, I'll, I'm going to say some things that people are going to be unhappy with. Okay. Those are good. Uh, but the, the college game today, I'm disappointed in, hmm. and I'm disappointed in the cadre of most of the cadre of college coaches, because I don't think they've pushed the basketball football administration, uh, culture in most colleges to promote our sport. Mm -hmm. You know, the season is 20 games long. If you're a smart coach, you only schedule 10 important games. So you never have a losing record. So there's no justification to fire you unless there's a moral clause within your contract. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that they have gotten very, very comfortable and do not want to fight the fight outside the game. And so, and therefore, uh, they're not producing the kind of players that we need to produce to take the game to the next level uh, in the United States. That's an interesting point because Grail and I went to a, a game, a D3 game about, I don't know, three, four years ago before the pandemic and stuff. But they were just playing long ball, knocking it in the box. Everything was a long ball because the guy just wanted to win. There was no, no, uh, you know, no, no nice play, no nice buildup or anything. But how much coach do you think it's the difference between, I sort of always kind of rail against the NCAA a little bit to say, you know, they treat football and basketball a certain way. And I, the rest blame, of us I blame the soccer coaches. Uh, there, there's a culture of football, basketball mentality culture mm -hmm. within 99% of college athletic administrators. And that culture still says soccer. It's played by a dun bunch of dumb immigrants. And the soccer coaches haven't had the balls to go out and say, hey, I'm pushing for my program. This is what I need. This is what we need. Uh, and collectively form a group that goes to the NCAA and doesn't just sit back and say, well, we accept whatever you say. Gets in there and fights for it, damn it! Right, right. Well, and we got Sasha Sarovsky and and Mike Noon and a, a couple of guys yeah, are trying many, to. Yeah, but how many season. are that? They're lone wolves. You're right. You're you're right. And I think you know I was just up at my college program and they have 2.5 scholarships and the football team has 85 and it's tough to match that once you have Title Nine and. You, you know you got to be able to put your job on the line. Uh, at Appalachian State, Kevin. Yeah. I had a, my. My relationship with the administration there was very poor, right from the beginning. Uh, my final year, I was called into the athletic director's office, and he said, uh, we're cutting your scholarships. So we had four and a half scholarships. And the Nigerians took up the biggest part of that. Right. He's cutting me back to three and more cuts the following year. And I told him, you're absolutely friggin' insane. This is after you're winning, right? This is, we're outdrawing the football team by a lot. Yeah. You guys are insane. You have a gold mine here and you're going to destroy it. He said, oh, you coaches all think that the grass is green or somewhere else. You're going to find that it's not. He was yelling. I was yelling. We parted and I found that the grass is green or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it was BU and you had AstroTurf. So it wasn't really. It, wasn't really <laughs> it stayed true. green the whole time. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, Sam, have anything except, for Coach? Except yeah. it was a real hard time smoking that green. Boy, I tell you, yeah. And I tell you, I still half of my butt is on that pitch, I think, still. <laughs> Sam? Uh, yeah, Coach, it's great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I, I'm curious, looking back at the 94 World Cup, uh, this is sort of a long-term question, but, um, you know, looking forward to the your hopes as to what that would achieve in the future, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how those have materialized or not, maybe what we still have to do, and maybe something that happened that you just had no way of predicting that surprised you. Uh, we, we had no way of predicting some of the things that occurred. Uh <clears throat> It has more than where we are today has more than fulfilled my uh, expectations when I started. Mm -hmm. Alan Rothenberg, Sunil, and I in 1992 had a probability of success study done. Pretty oh, much no. led by Sunil. <laughs> you know, here we are going to host a World Cup. You have to understand the soccer landscape 
1990. Mm. Uh, no pro league, none of this, none of that. And FIFA's requirement is we start a pro league. So what's our probability of success? And I want to say that the number of probability that came back was 27. And we had a 27% chance of success. And here we are 20 some odd years later, soon to be 30 teams in a pro league that is vibrant. Uh, but as I look back over the last few years, the, the best thing that happened to soccer in America had nothing to do with the Federation or the World Cup. And it was development of soccer fans. You go to a stadium today and it's like you're going to a European, a big time European game. Just look at Atlanta. Uh, it, it's incredible. Look at my local team, FC Tucson, like Division Three, packed house. People waving flags and yelling and screaming and vuvuzelas. And it, yeah. that, that is a development that occurred culturally on its own. Well, I like all that stuff except the vuvuzelas. I tell you, they drive me crazy. Oh, I, I, I want to take a life when the guy behind me has one. <laughs> I was at the World Cup in South Africa. Oh, yeah. I, abs I absolutely loved them. I oh, thought, boy, this is really an African culture. Yeah, and it gave a, it gave a great feeling, uh, but you couldn't hear right, the commentators. We don't need, half we don't the time. need to anglicize what they're doing. You know, no, coach. You, you, you know, you look at our country, three hundred and fifty million people. I think you know through your Gatorade uh, experience, you saw the potential that this country had for this sport, and it was interesting because uh, what I loved about you was every time you saw me, every time I was somewhere, you were with a pack of people. It was like security guys and the grand poobah of this, a governor, uh, you know, there's this sort of international vibe with soccer, you know, when you'd have all those officials come in, how hard was it to deal with the way business is done in America and what you learned with big time sports and then having to deal with these other cultures? I think it was like in Brazil, it was, it was Havalanche at the time when you were sort of dealing with stuff back then and, you know, uh, European cultures, every culture is different. Some kickbacks and graphs, all the stuff that you probably had to, you know, sit at the table and sort of say, oh shit, what do I do here? You know? Well, I have definitely seen the underbelly, uh, mm -hmm. the ugly game. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen it firsthand. And it ultimately is what led me to leave the game. Right. I just could not do some of the things that I saw happening within FIFA. There was corruption literally up and down the chain. Give you an example. Youth World Under 20 World Championship Argentina. I was a venue director hired by FIFA to be the head of the Cordoba games. I was in Argentina for a month. Okay. And then to work the final game as the commissioner of the final game. Uh, everywhere you go when you're with FIFA, you get a car and you get a driver. You know, FIFA's top shelf kind of travel. Right. And one day I'm in the car and my driver says, gee, I'm really sorry things are going so badly. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, my boss told me that uh, you guys are not uh, doing so well and you're only making about half the amount of money that you anticipated. So I said, well, what, what did he mean by that? And he said, well, then he told us that he could only pay us half of what he promised. <laughs> Taking the kickback, yeah. Taking a kickback. So I told the kid, here's what you want you to do tomorrow. Don't come to work. And the kid said, what do you mean? He's a college kid. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, leave it to me. 
I'm going to call him. I'm going to say, where the hell's my driver? And he's going to say, well, he'll be here in a minute. And I'll say, well, I want him here now. And I, what's the story? Well, I hear that you've cut their salary. Then the guy says to me, well, how much do you want, sir? So I'm going to take a kickback off of the kickback. He wants you in on it. So he covers his ass. Yeah. Which I said, know. here's what I want. I want you to pay those damn kids a full amount of money. Another example, microcosm. Yeah. Another example is my first, one of my first game experiences of hosting foreign countries in the United States with U.S. soccer was a a, a double header four team tournament in the Orange Bowl in Miami in 1990, and the game fee for Colombia was fairly high, and the Colombian delegation told me. We want to be paid in cash, in hundred-dollar bills, counted out in the locker room at halftime at the Orange Bowl. <laughs> oh my! It's like a drug deal. Well, the it's perfect like Scarf- city for it. Scarface. There is perfect no city. book oh that God. tells you. Uh, here's how you become a secretary general. Here's how you run an international sports federation. Right. So I dutifully get the money. Go in with guards. Go into the locker room. We count out the money. Is my wife for that? <laughs> count out the money. Sorry, sorry. Hi, after, after, the, after the count, the guy looks at me and says, Well, what's your take? And I said, What do you mean, what's my take? And he said, Well, ger- generally, you sign a contract, so it's 30%. 30. Oh my God. Even if it was 100,000, I was walking over to 10 grand in my car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you it was more than 100,000. <laughs> what's wrong with you mister what's wrong with this american guy here's my take we're hosting a world cup in four years right this will never damn happen again if you want to get paid in hundred dollar bills i'll walk over with you to the bank i'll give you the check you give it to the bank teller and have him count it out for you this shit will not happen again so you had to draw kind of a hard line right then when people knew where you stood they kind of let you let you go. You can't be bought. Yeah. yeah you can't but be, understanding yeah. those cultures, let me go back for a second. That the key to the, your question. Mm-hmm. Understanding the cultures, uh, th- there was a test tube that I worked in uh, to, to understand that. And that was both Warren Wilson College and uh, Appalachian State University. We had 17 different nationalities on those teams. So, how do you put those teams together? What's the difference of the way a German responds to the way a Nigerian responds? And how, right. how do you intermesh those? So it was kind of like a test tube for me uh, to understand the international culture of sport. Right. And uh, yeah, and I think, you know, I, I often said like when, I didn't know how it was gonna happen, but FIFA was gonna have to come to the table a little bit. It was gonna be an American person who did it. And that's why I thought the, the prosecutor here sort of, said there's got to be a a way of doing business internationally that everybody can can sort of get on board with um but somehow you guys because we're talking about a 90 because it's 94 the world cup you i don't know when you landed it but uh you had to sort of probably just figure out a way to get uh get the deal done you know so that we could actually award the games get the games i came the awarding of it came in 1988 on july 4th and that was done by Werner Fricker and the U.S. Soccer Federation with Sunil Galati working with him. So I had very, very little to do 
with the actual initial bid and bringing the game here. Managing the games once I got here, building a team that could play and go through the second round, uh, organizing the sport, professionalizing the office, that was during my tenure. Grail? Yeah, Hank, since you, uh, you're wearing your U.S. soccer cap right now, or of course our listeners can't see it, but I can, uh, just a, a question about kind of the, the, the current state of U.S. soccer, and they're obviously at a pivotal point. And do you think this is finally the time that the men and the women come together on, like, on a collective bargaining agreement so we can kind of iron these issues out? I'm very pessimistic about it. Uh, first, let's go with the technical issues of the, the first round of qualifying. Uh, I fear, and I haven't talked to anybody at the Federation about this, but I fear that I see uh, remnants of the 1998 team on this team. In 98, you had two separate cultures in the team, two cliques, if you will. Right. And one clique repre were represented by most of the European players and the other clique by most of the domestic players. And it turned out that you couldn't put the round peg in the, you know, the round peg into the square hole. Right. Uh, that team destructed itself. And it wasn't a matter of soccer. I thought the soccer was okay. It was a matter of citizenship. And I kind of have a feeling after watching the opening three games that I may be seeing the same phenomena happen again. So from a technical perspective, I'm pretty concerned uh, and if that's the case, the coach has got a really big job to do and he's got to be pretty hard to get it done. I remember that very well there, you know, cause I was in camp for a while watching those guys and talking to them and there was animosity between the two sides and that's, that never helps. Um, you know, when, you you, when you're playing sitting, a team, you should have been sitting in my seat. Oh, I that's, bet. Where all, that's where it all ended. <laughs> so. Right. Well, it was a Samson and the whole, uh, you know, the Harks controversy, man, those are, you know, and that, that's sort of um, the professionalism that is start that is in the game now. I think, you know, yeah. like I said, was a, was a big part of, you were a big part of that, of, of starting that we've got to act like professionals, be treated like professionals and, and think about what's ahead. Uh, Sam. Um, yeah. Let me, just let me, let me go back to your question. Sure. Coach. I answered it technically. Mm -hmm. uh, do I think that the, the men and women's team in the Federation are going to come to a, an agreement? I don't think it will be easy at all. And this is labor negotiations. Mm -hmm. They are extremely difficult. And I have to tell you, when I was there, I was not very good at it because I was emotionally invested. Right. So when we had, we had negotiations with the women's collective bargaining agents, I was a real hard ass. You know, I'm looking at an organization that I'm heading that there are thousands and thousands of people who are responsible for giving those, those players the opportunities to play at the level they're playing. There are people who hung the nets, who coached, who refereed, who did schedules. And that's the backbone of soccer in America. It's the federation. Sure. And then to hold the federation up, it got down the granularity of the negotiations got down to how many bananas are going to be on a breakfast room table. So it, it, it is painful. It is hard. And I anticipate the new secretary general is going through some very, very difficult times. You know, I think we were talking about it before you got, you got, you got on. You got What's that? Line. You yeah. got to hold the line in the negotiation because you have the food issue responsibility to the overall organization, not to one or two teams. 
We have youth teams. We have coaches uh, uh, education. We have referee education. We have youth development. We have amateur development. Uh, you, you have to have the whole organization in mind. That's your fiduciary responsibility, not one or two teams. So that's the real tough balancing act. Yeah. And I, I always talk about, uh, you know, my professional career, right? I didn't make much money. You know why? Because there was no one in the seats. So right. it's, it's about money at a certain level. Like you could say title nine in college, morally, that's the right thing to do. Um, federally funded institutions, but w- when it becomes money, I could not demand a certain amount of money as a player because we, we just weren't bringing it in. So um, that's interesting to hear. So I, I hope it's, it's unfortunate because the passion that we've had for this game to talk about the humble beginnings of this game and where we have come. That's why I try to talk to the, you know, people like you who have actually, you know, brought it to where we are. I no guess one, in, the, in the sense, Hank, these are good problems because no one gave a shit they, before. They are problems of our success. Right. And that's how, as a leader, that's how you have to frame it. Right. Do you know how much the national team players were making the year I got there? Year before I got there? <laughs> how much? $15 a day per diem. Oh my God. Right. Now sure. that was for incidentals. The Federation, once they came in the camp, would pay, you know, room, board, uh, transportation, all that kind of stuff. But it was $15 I, a game. And I remember I was kind of in the mix and okay. I remember one of the World Cup games, uh, Steve Moyers couldn't play because he forgot to bring his passport. And he's like, I need a passport. You're like, what? Come on. It's like, yeah. this is all these things. So, hey, uh, Sam, he's the youngster on the panel. He has a question that he he likes to throw at people who have great ideas and a, and a great past. So let, let's hear it, Sam. Let's, let's throw it at Hank. See what you yeah, get. Yeah. So I, I've been denied and shot down on this several times by several college coaches at all levels. Um, but I... You know, if the split season doesn't happen that some college coaches are pushing for, which I'm definitely in favor of, uh, I've long had this dream of having a open style college cup featuring college teams from any division, division one, two, three, whatever. Uh, And I'm basically just looking for someone to tell me it's not a horrible idea and uh, a a champion. Number one, I completely agree with it. It's like the U.S. Open Cup or the. Oh, Okay. So I completely agree with it. Number two, it sounds to me like it's a great business venture. That the marketability, that will be just terrific. I'd like to own the property. That a boy, Hank. Maybe you guys should chat after the show. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so coach, to be speaking of uh, chatting before the show, before we get going here, uh, you know, I, you're writing a book and I've said to these guys when I, you know, when I was, when booking you for the show, I said, my God, this guy should write a book. And now, you're, uh, you're actually writing a book about your experience in this game. So uh, how's yeah, that? You're getting up every morning? Well, it's like training, man. It just I had this uh, occurrence, well, about a, two months ago, where my eldest son, who served in the military for many years, got in touch with me and said, hey, I'm sending you a ticket uh, via email, fly out to see me. And uh, the following day, we're going to have a seven-hour drive together. We're going to spend a week together. And uh, so we went, found, wound our way up to Montauk Point, Long Island. Oh, beautiful. And I used to surf a lot when I was younger. And a lot of time spent out at Montauk at a place called Ditch Plains. Oh, yeah. Well, he brought me back to Ditch Plains, and we contracted with a, a surfboard manufacturing group uh, to build our own wooden traditional heirloom surfboard. But the time that I got to spend with my son, because 
over the 20 years, we hadn't spent more than two or three days at a time alone. It was always with family or with friends or with right. wives. And, you know, it was, but this time was just he and I. And the conversations were, you know, here's a guy who's been on the front line, literally of a war for 20 years. Yeah, he's a special and, forces or something, isn't he? He's yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, mean, I wow, don't God bless him. Yeah. He, but at any rate, the conversations were incredible. But the most salient times of that was when there was nothing said. It was just he and I feeling this bond, 75-year-old guy, 74-year-old guy, feeling this bond with his son and the son with him. That was overwhelming to me. So I thought, you know, I, I've just got to write about this. So I came Dude. home and I wrote an article. And it, I sent it to the surf shop. They sent it to the local newspaper. The local newspaper contacted me and said, can we print it? I said, yeah, of course. Then someone picked it up, sent it to Soccer America. Soccer America got it and said, can we print it? And I yeah. said, of course. And then it, went, it really went viral kind of thing. Uh, all over the place. You're a published author without even trying. Come on, man. That's no. annoying. But it's it's wonderful. Two heroes uh, out on a surfboard. Two, two. If it's published, it means you're making money. So I ain't published. <laughs> you know what? For what you had with your son out in that oh, water, no uh, money. It's no, no money could buy it. Yeah. I'm still on a high with it. I, yeah. You know, it was a transcendental moment in my life. And so I decided I'd come home. Many, many, many people said, Hank, you've had such experiences with U.S. soccer, with your career. You've changed career five times right. in your life. You need to write the book. So I began and I'm, and I'm having so much fun doing it because you scratch one memory, psh, 10 comes Another one. Yeah. In my sleep last night, I was remembering things, running over to my phone on a, on a voice memo saying, boom, 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 boom. These are things you have to include. And I'm afraid that this thing will be cut down from a thousand pages to maybe 500 pages at the end copy. Well, there's the, there's it, the trick it'll sometimes. Be a, it'll be a lot. Well, a lot. I tell you, you gave me one great memory that, that is one of my all-time great memories. And I, I responded to that article because it was in face on Facebook. And that's how I became aware of it. Uh, in 94, when I was working for ESPN, I was standing in the, the gaggle of reporters, uh, the Rose Bowl. It was sold out, packed. And you came out like with the grand poobahs of everywhere. And I, I waved to you and you called me over and you left the pack and you put your arm around me. We went to the, the middle of the field and you said, look around, Flynn, take it in. We've come a long way and we've got a long way to go. And I was like, it was one of my great moments in my life. And I appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate you, you saying that. And I appreciate you, you remembering that. And uh, you, you know, you talk about the grand poobahs. Another yeah. great story about the Boston venue. Yeah. So the uniforms for the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee for the key staff was a suit that was fuchsia in color. <laughs> and at our opening ceremonies, get this, we had George Bush one right. and Michael Dukakis, the governor of the state, who would ultimately run against each other for the presidency, mm -hmm. open our opening ceremonies. But I was the lead of the Los Angeles Olympic Organizer Committee at that venue. I was the top man. Yeah. So I was introduced to both of them and stood in the middle of both of them 
during the national anthem. <laughs> I look to my left and I see Dukakis and he's wearing a, a sport coat or jacket and underneath was a flak vest. I look at Bush and underneath his coat is a flak jacket. I look at me and underneath my fuchsia coat <laughs> was nothing but my skin. <laughs> Boxer shorts, that's it. I remember thinking if there's a guy he better be a damn good shot and miss me. You'd be toast. So, that uh, Coach, well, uh, oh, Coach, that was, lesson, that was a lesson. Lesson learned. I got to get a new gig. I'm going to go to work for Gatorade. <laughs> Quaker Oats. Well, Coach, it's been so nice to uh, to talk to you. Uh, count me in when that book comes out. I'm going to pre-order it on Amazon. Count me in when we start this uh, Open Cup for college soccer. See, Sam, you got a Thank winner you. there. At last. That's just, at last. That's I was not an, just anybody. I was an NAIA player. And back in those days, the 60s and 70s, the NAIA teams, by and large, were the best teams in the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Davis and Elkins Howard was won big. the national championship in NCAA Division One. We won NAIA. We played 0-0 tie at Harvard. Hmm. I mean, there's very little difference of the quality of play between any of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So Open Cup for college players, I think it's a brilliant idea. And when you do it, Call me, I'll get you marked. Look at that. Griswold came up with a winner there, man. This could be Sam's last appearance over the ball. Now, you're going to meet with a lot of resistance because the NCAA may be the most hypocritical organization in America. Good. Here, here. You're going to go up against a lot, a lot of uh, animosity and criticism. But you know, Sam, you were. Stand up for. Uh, torpedoes full speed ahead man sam you were 0 for 7 but now you're 1 for 7 but because it's hank steinbrecher you're kind of like that's kind of a draw right there you're 7 for 7 so (laughs) hey coach it was great to talk to you thank you so much thank you for your time over the ball and uh and we'll see you again soon catching the memories thank you very much oh god guys it was great to get caught up with hank steinbrecher i mean what what stories huh and that what a resume scratching the surface there i'm so glad he's writing a book because man this story has to be told and uh, mm-hmm. it uh is amazing he's like hey he's kind of the, sort of the jack welsh i think of of u.s soccer that's how i sort of look at him so um so some good stuff i thought it was interesting his comments about college soccer he's not he's not very bullish about the coaching side of college soccer but he is very oh. bullish about the open tournament so uh, take well, sam, 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 sam i just teed you up for that come on buddy but you know the ncaa does get criticized as this hypocritical organization and the student athlete and all that bullshit and it's all kind of coming down and and i think men's soccer i don't know maybe i'm playing the victim here but men's soccer has been um you know really as it's growing the sport is growing in this nation they have not kept up yeah and they should be ashamed of themselves uh they, they really should it's not football not basketball that you know um it's just really it's going to be a lost opportunity that they'll look mm-hmm. back on and so uh it seems like things are changing over there anyway um and i, I bet you they don't even let you know division one do the split season even though that's what's best for the game and best for the student athlete they just don't care so um call or write your local senator today. <laughs> all right guys what else we got before we get going here um, yeah i got a uh, short two question quiz uh based on the champions league which is obviously underway this week. Um, so a bit of news recently, uh, when Monaco uh, lost to Shakhtar Donetsk in Champions League qualifying, 
league uh, uh, fell to number six overall in the UEFA coefficient, which was kind of funny because it meant that Messi wasn't even technically moving to a team in the top five uh, leagues in Europe. Um, it also <laughs> means that France only has two clubs in Champions League this year, Lille and PSG. Uh, so my question is, what league moved in to fifth place to take the French League's spot? Belarus. Um, Nobody. I'm going to say Tur uh, Turkey. Okay. Kevin, do you have a real answer? Or? <laughs> I didn't appreciate that. What answer. are the top five now? Tell me them. Well, I can't because well, he did. Well, he didn't because the that, Dutch, that, the Dutch that, league, that would tip you off. Okay, okay, it's actually the Portuguese league who have three. Portuguese, you put the you. The okay. in the group stage, Sporting, uh, Benfica, and Porto. So the I thought sporting. that was interesting. Nice guys. Hey, by the way, quick story: Dillon Stadium, Hartford, Connecticut. I is an outside back uh, playing against uh, Sporting, and my God, was that. I felt like I was in the middle of a rice paddy in Vietnam with people flying by me and not knowing where to duck or where to run. There was nowhere to hide. It was horrible. All right, go ahead, Sam. What's next? All right, second question. So despite that, PSG are the odds-on favorites to win the Champions League at 3.3 to 1, according to DraftKings. What percentage chance is the club given to win the Champions League by the 538 projection model that I often cite on the show? So what chance, what percentage did, does, is PSG been awarded to win it? Yes, they are the betting favorite at 3.3 okay. to 1. What are you looking for odds or just a percentage? Just a percentage. I'm going to say like over 50, 65. I'd say, I'd say 59%. Okay. Uh, the correct answer is 3%. Uh, so this is not aligned at all, which is very interesting. So the 538 projection does not align with the betting odds um, at all. And in fact, they are given the ninth overall best chance of winning the Champions League. Uh, Man City are at number one at 20%. Bayern okay. are at 18%. Liverpool are at 10%. Chelsea are at 8%, Real Madrid are at 5%, Ajax at 5%, Barcelona at 5%, Dortmund at 4%, and finally PSG at 3%. So there's quite a big discrepancy. I don't wow. know what it comes down to. I it's don't just... know how they could be at 3% when you're trotting Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe out there. Well, clearly the betting public uh, agrees. Yeah. Wow. Well, welcome to 101 yeah. Statistics, with <laughs> Professor Sam Griswold. I, I, I threw out a nice 65%. That was good. I was only off by 62%. Oh, my God. I'm going to need a nap after that one. <laughs> all right. Well, we got the quiz. Um, so, all right, guys, what are we watching? Are you watching Champions League today, obviously, and on the Inter, Inter Real Madrid and Bruges uh, PSG, I think. All right. That, those are the two? There's a couple, though. Yeah. A couple more, yeah. right? Yeah. So, all right. Good. Um, all right, guys, that's all the time we have. Before we go, I just do want to give a shout out um, to the passing of one of my friends, Norm McDonald, the comedian. You know, I didn't know him really well. Right when I was, uh, I was, I moved out to Los Angeles and was starting to hang out with him a little bit in the clubs and just the dry, sarcastic. He was funny. He was like, basically you call him a comedian's comedian because he had the the wry wit that makes comics laugh. It's not so much always the audience, but my God, he was uh, one of the funniest people I've ever sat at a table with and just me of all people not saying a word, just listening and laughing my ass off. Um, and just as we started to get to know each other, he, he went over to SNL 
which is on the East Coast and um, sort of lost, uh, lost touch with him in that regard. So uh, a, a family man, um, a good guy, and uh, he will be missed. So the, thoughts yeah, and prayers. Yeah, the clips of him on, on Conan are spectacular because Conan clearly loved him and they just had a wonderful relationship when he was a guest on that show. Right. Right. And that humor, you know, he talked about, you know, he was doing OJ jokes when OJ jokes were like not cool. And I think it was a Don Olmeyer or whatever. Don he got Olmeyer fired, fired him, fired him for, for doing OJ jokes after he was told not to do OJ jokes. And one thing that pisses a comedian off more than anything is to say, to tell them not to talk about something when they're going on stage. I just couldn't help it. You know, you just are mm -hmm. like, you know what, fuck you. I'm gonna actually open with that. <laughs> um, when I auditioned at Stand Up New York, the guy told me, uh, don't do any taxi bits, you know? And I'm like, well, okay. And I went up and did a taxi bit. <laughs> he tried to almost fight me when I came off stage. I'm like, you don't tell me what to do. But Norm MacDonald was the best at that. Um, I think I was at one of his Access, uh, Gotham Access TV uh, tapings. That's the last time I saw him, which is probably about five years ago. And uh, and he was sick then, but didn't, no one knew it. He suffered mm -hmm. with this for nine years. So uh, so God bless him and his family and um, a very funny man. And he will surely be missed. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank our guest, uh, the great Hank Steinbrecher for uh, all he has done for the game in this country. Um, and uh, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB.